0: Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm your host, Greg Dalton. My guest today is Birute Mary Galdacost, a field biologist who has spent 38 years in Borneo studying orangutans. She's the author of Reflections of Eden and a protege of Kenyan archaeologist Louis Sitleki. So, Dr. Galdacost, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming. So let's begin. I think if you, most people mention the the rainforest, they probably would think of the Amazon first, though Indonesia clearly has a very large and important rainforest. You've been there for a la- very long time. What have you seen as far as the impacts of climate change uh, in, in Borneo and how, how Borneo fits into the climate change uh, equation? Then we can come around and talk about the orangutans.
1: Well, I can't speak too directly about climate change, But one of the things that we have noticed and others have noticed is that the El Nino weather phenomena, which used to be relatively rare, coming, say, every seven or eight years, is now becoming more and more frequent. So sometimes you get it two years, um, almost two years in a row. Uh, You might get it um, once every two years. And this was never the case before. And... The interesting thing is that
0: is that a result of warming oceans? Is that the frequency of El Nino? Yeah,
1: Yeah. um, when the oceans in the Western Pacific,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, yeah, it would be the Western Pacific, uh, warm up, and we know that there's going to be drought in Borneo, and in the extreme Western Pacific, and there's going to be heavy rain in the eastern Pacific, so that's when California gets a lot of rain, Peru gets a lot of rain, but Borneo gets drought. And the interesting thing is that the increase in frequency of El Nino allows the palm oil plantations to burn the forest in order to establish new plantations. So the process is fueling itself. Um, Indonesia produces so much carbon as a result of the peat swamp forests being burned for palm oil production that it is now the third largest emitter of carbon in the world, after the United States and uh, China. And Indonesia is definitely not a major industrial power.
0: Sure. So peat obviously absorbs carbon, and you're saying when there's droughts because of El Nino, then they cut down and they replant?
1: No, what they do is they cut down the trees, sell the ones that are valuable, and then the trees that have no major commercial value, they just burn them. And this facilitates the establishment of palm oil plantations. So it's, it's, it's like the process is fueling itself.
0: And palm oil is a big deal. I think people don't really know much about palm oil, but it's in, in uh, if you walk down the grocery store, it's in virtually <laughs> many, many products. So explain the connection between deforestation a little further, deforestation and, and palm oil. Well,
1: um, palm oil is called the cruel fruit. It's also called the golden fruit because it's so lucrative. But because of the establishment of palm oil plantations throughout Southeast Asia, mm. Um, The forests are being cleared, and again, the main way that these forests are cleared is through fire during the El Ninos, because most of the time, um, you know, Indonesia is um, in the equatorial rain belt, so... Virtually every month you get rain.
0: Uh, so, so, so drought is a commercial opportunity to, to burn and to clear and then to plant these, har- these very lucrative crops. It's the cheapest crops.
1: method. It's yeah. three times as cheap as any other method. So the palm oil concessionaires wait for the El Nino, they wait for the drought, and then they burn. And, of course, these fires run out of control. Sometimes people say it's not really by accident. Some people say it is by accident, but these fires run out of control huge areas of get of forest get burned. So in 1997, something like 10 million hectares, not tell me tell me 10 million acres, but 10 million hectares of forest and woodlands burned in Indonesia that would be the equivalent of something like 25 million acres of forest. And I think the worst forest fires in the United States only produced about 10 million acres of damage. So uh, this fire in 1997 was the largest forest fire up to that time recorded in human history.
0: And what is the government of Indonesia doing about, do they support the palm plantations because they create commerce and jobs?
1: Well, the Indonesian government is ambivalent. So on one hand, They really don't like the fires, particularly since the smoke from these fires uh, goes to neighboring countries. The only time that former President Suharto ever apologized to anybody was when uh, the fires of 1997 produced such a haze that uh, people in Kuala Lumpur and Darwin, Australia, couldn't breathe. And he actually apologized. Um, So they have strong anti-fire measures. They're training volunteer, um, firefighting um, staff. There are laws now that uh, if you burn for no reason, you get fined and even put in jail. (coughs) But on the other hand, palm oil is extremely lucrative. It's called the golden fruit because it's so lucrative. And the amount of taxes that it produces, the amount of money that it produces for the elites of Indonesia is incredible. So all the old uh, logging companies that used used to log the forests of Borneo and Sumatra have now repositioned themselves as logging and palm oil companies.
0: So are there alternatives to palm oil or for it to provide the indigenous people, the local people with, with some jobs or commerce? Is there any alternative to palm oil, perhaps one that's not so lucrative?
1: Well, again, employment is always a difficult issue. I yeah. mean, as we're now learning in North America yeah. during this um, time of um, financial lack of liquidity, Um There are things like ecotourism, which we support. We have a staff. Our foundation, which is the Orangutan Foundation International, actually employs a staff of 250 local people to help us with the Orangutan conservation work. Um, Working for palm oil plantations is hard, dreary work. So if other work were available, uh, people would take it. Most of the people who work in the palm oil plantations in Kalimantan or Indonesian Borneo are actually migrants from other islands where life is hard. Local people don't like it. It's too, you know, it's too dreary work. It's really hard work. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of land conflicts between the palm oil concessions, the palm oil companies on one hand, and the local people, some of whom are aboriginal people, such as the Dayaks, on the other
0: how about international organizations? I know that, that uh, the World Bank, uh, are there other NGOs that are involved trying to help the the rainforest in Borneo?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, there is an NGO in a nonprofit in San Francisco, Rand uh, the Rainforest
0: Action Network.
1: Action Network, uh-huh. and they are trying to stop the uh, the palm oil in Indonesia and the soya bean uh, production in, uh, in Brazil. Hmm. Because what's happening in Indonesia with palm oil is happening with soya beans in Brazil, where he- vast areas of forest are being cl- cleared to produce soya beans. Mm-hmm. But I don't know too much about it. I do know about the palm oil in Indonesia, and it is just catastrophic. Catastrophic for not only orangutan, but also all wildlife in Borneo and Sumatra.
0: Do you know if there are commercial alternatives? So, I mean, if people to say, uh, people at the Whole Foods, for example, didn't want to buy palm oil products because of its impact, would, is it possible to make what, crackers, absolutely. detergents, soaps with uh, without palm oil?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's no, absolutely no need to use palm oil. And palm oil is also not a particularly healthy fat. Mm-hmm. It's maybe not the worst of the worst, but it's up there in terms of being bad for you. And about 10 years ago, uh, a business person who had had heart attacks actually uh, led a campaign against palm oil and the use of food uh, because he thought it was somehow connected to the heart attack that he had. Hmm. And that campaign was actually quite successful.
0: It's a saturated fat.
1: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, And the Malaysian government was very upset with this campaign. They thought it was in some way anti-Malaysian, because at that time the Malaysians were the largest producers of palm oil. Now Indonesia has jumped into that role, and the Indonesians are a little bit more um, mellow about it. But they're making so much money. I mean, they're making so much money off palm oil, it's unbelievable.
0: Has biofuels pressured the deforestation of the Indonesian rainforest? We've heard a lot about that affecting, displacing food and displacing, disrupting uh, international commodities. So has that hit Borneo as well?
1: I'm so glad you asked that question because one of the driving forces for producing more palm oil was its use as a biofuel, oh, okay. especially in Europe. And the irony is, as the forests are cleared to produce more. Uh, palm oil, uh, more carbon goes into the atmosphere, world's atmosphere, accelerating cli- global climate change. So it's one of those paradoxes. And recently, the Euro- Europe and the European governments have, you know, their eyes have opened up to it. But, you know, sometimes there's something to be said for using fossil fuels. And this is one case where the alternative biofuel was much worse than the fossil fuel in a variety of uh, reasons, not uh, just one reason, but um, it's exacerbating global climate change. Indonesia produces 13% of the carbon that goes into the world's atmosphere because of the burning of its tropical rainforest to produce, uh, to establish plantations such as palm oil plantations.
0: And what are the possible scenarios or drivers to, to stop or even ter- turn that around? If, there's, if if this golden fruit you call it, if the economic incentives are so strong and the elites are supporting or benefiting from it, um, how could that change?
1: Don't use palm oil. I mean, I read the lists of uh, substances in the food that I eat, and if I see palm oil, I don't buy it. Uh, in Indonesia, I can barely eat anything because virtually every baked product or potato chip has palm oil in it. I mean, I'm sort of, I, I yeah, eat everywhere. dry peanuts, you know. Yeah. But here in North America, uh, all, there are alternatives, and the alternatives are much better for you. And probably they might be a little more expensive uh, because palm oil is dirt cheap. I mean, that's, that's why it's omnipresent in everything. Okay, But still, it's not good for you. And the consequences for the earth, like I said, are catastrophic.
0: So f- from a health perspective as well as an environmental yeah. you know, perspective.
1: I can't think of anything worse.
0: How about the people in, in the local areas where you, where you work? Are they aware of the, uh, the impacts of palm oil? Are they aware of, of, of climate change and sort of be able to link their, their local economy to, to, the, to, the, to the global environment?
1: They are beginning to. Uh, certainly there has been a lot of conflict between the Aboriginal people who are the dyaks of Borneo and the palm oil uh, concessions, the palm oil companies, because the palm oil companies get their uh, concessions from Jakarta or from the provincial capital of Palangaraya. <coughs> and they come in and they take the land of the local people. And the local people, in especially in the mountainous interior of Borneo, have not yet joined the um, sort of the land certification system and if you don't, which Indonesia is in the process of uh, establishing so they own land as a community mm. and the problem mm. is if you own land as a community then the government views it as not being owned at all, so the palm oil concessionaires come in and they just take the forest away from the local people if the local people have a, a plot, like a rice plot then they will pay them for that little plot. But what they don't realize is the local people follow uh, a method of shifting cultivation, which actually is the best form of agriculture in a tropical rainforest system.
0: Sustainably you know, rotating crops. or rotating. rotating
1: crops, exactly, kind of like in medieval Europe. and uh, But the palm oil concessionaires don't acknowledge this. So there's enormous conflict with the local people. People are killed, people are put in jail, uh, people are arrested and beat up because the local people do not want the palm oil. They want their forests. And uh, where I work, uh, we are very close to regional capital, so the aboriginal people in the area all have land certificates. Mm-hmm. So it's harder for the palm oil to come in. They actually have to buy the land. So one of the things that we are trying to do is we are competing with the palm oil uh, concessions in order to buy the forest. But again, um, you need... For
0: conservation. We, your foundation, wants to buy the land for conservation.
1: Yes, and also persuade the local governments to establish small reserves. So, for instance, we persuaded the village um, council and the village chief in the area where we work to establish a 411-hectare reserve they gave to OFI, our foundation, to manage. That's that's 1,000 acres. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. substantial. So we didn't have to buy it. But we have bought several hundred hectares of forest, and we're hoping in the end to buy several thousand hectares. But again, it requires funding. But this is the best way of saving forest. It's expensive, but once you have the land, once you buy it, then uh, you can evict people. It's yours can prevent them from coming in or cutting down the trees. And um, one can ask, why? Well, why aren't other organizations doing this? The reason is that Indonesia has very severe land tenure loss. Only Indonesian individuals are allowed to own land in Indonesia. You know, it's not like Canada where you can, or Costa Rica where you can go in and buy land. In Indonesia, uh, there was a big blue When the government decided that foreigners might be able to own condominiums, this was like seen like a credible breakthrough. So we we're able to buy land because we are Indonesian.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, are people able then to to have a sustainable livelihood from that land um, in, in a sustainable way? Is that what you, well? Is it, are you doing it for the people or for for, doing for the for orangutans everybody. or for for? We're the... doing it
1: for everybody. Um, the two hundred and fifty local people that work with us, uh, we encourage them, uh, for instance, uh, to find ways to be sustainable in the future. Let's say that suddenly you know, we go bankrupt and our foundation is not able to raise funding or what mm-hmm. have you. Uh, we don't leave, want to leave these people high and dry. And, you know, they're aware of it. So one of the things that we have been encouraging is for the local people to either buy land or use their own land, but not forest, land that was cleared previously or land that is now abandoned grassland, and plant rubber for the future. So many of our assistants have done that. They've taken time off with our encouragement, and they've been planting uh, small gardens of rubber.
0: And rubber is a uh, cash crop that is less offensive environmentally and more sustainably? Used.
1: Yes, it's much more sustainable. And the reason it's sustainable, palm oil is a very greedy plant. One tree, one palm requires, if I'm not mistaken, seven liters of water a day. Uh, mm-hmm. It also requires huge amounts of fertilizer. So people who, have, who work with palm oil... Uh, concessionaires and local people who plant palm oil on their own say that unless you have, say, about 10 hectares, and for a local person this is a lot, 10 hectares of palm oil planted, it's going to be very difficult for you to make a profit. This is why these huge concessions are profitable. Mm -hmm. But the local people can't really make that much money. And it's not that it's greedy just for water. It's also very greedy for fertilizer, so if you don't put the fertilizer on, which many local people don't do because they don't have the funds to buy the fertilizer, um, the crop that you're going to harvest is going to be very minimal. You'll get some crop, but it'll be minimal. So, so the, it's a
0: big business. It's a it's a business at scale that to to really exactly to have scale to and, get into palm and, and in rubber fact, is is yeah, small rubber, people can do rubber. Small
1: people can do rubber. The only thing is that. Rubber is very susceptible to fire. Rubber is basically a primary rainforest tree from the forests of the Amazon. So, Mm -hmm. and it's not devastating to wildlife. Uh, In Borneo, even though rubber is not a native plant, uh, red leaf-eating monkeys, for instance, and orangutans can actually eat the leaves. Mm. And it's not a greedy plant. You really don't need much fertilizer. You don't really need much water. Um, so a local person, like my husband, for instance, mm-hmm. has a hectare of rubber plants. And presumably in four or five years when those plants reach a certain size, uh, then he'll be able to tap them and this will be sustainable for many years.
0: Okay. You mentioned the orangutans, so let's discuss the orangutans. How are they faring in, in all this pressure of deforestation and impact on their, on their ecosystem?
1: They're faring very poorly. Uh, when I first came to Borneo, which was 38 years ago, the population that I was studying was, you know, just a small population you know, on, on the coast, and it wasn't particularly seemingly important or there wasn't anything special about it. But as the years have worn on and as larger, all the large populations of orangutans either went extinct or became fragmented. The population that I study, that we study and protect, is now the largest orangutan population in the world, 6,000 individuals. When I began my study in 1971, there were populations that were 20,000, 30,000 in size, but those populations have been obliterated. So, We protect approximately 6,000 orangutans in the area of Tanjung Puting National Park. And we encourage the Indonesian government to establish a national park there. We encourage the government to extend it. We encourage the government to protect it. And we co-manage that park with the government. Mm -hmm. All the orangutans in Sumatra now probably only number about 6,000. So... When I say this is the largest orangutan population in the world, I'm saying that this is a very significant population. And the only reason it survived is because we were there for 38 years.
0: And got the government to create this park. And yeah, we work with the
1: government. I mean, Indonesia, it's a heavy-handed state <laughs> sure, sure, as far as the government is concerned. So it used to be a military dictatorship until 1998, uh, and now it's a democracy, but it's still very bureaucratic and heavy-handed. So, yes, there's no way you're going to get anything accomplished in, in Indonesia without working with the government.
0: And what have you learned, uh, insights into what, uh, human evolution or during that, that time? What are some of the highlights that you've learned from studying the Well, orangutans? I've learned
1: a lot of things about orangutans per se, but I think what I've learned about human beings is that orangutans are semi-solitary or solitary in adulthood. They're very strong individuals, but in their strength is their weakness. Our strength is our weakness, and our weakness is that we cannot be solitary. I I just read an article, I think it was in the New Yorker, about the effects of solitary confinement on prisoners in our prisons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's horrific. I mean, people go insane without human contact, Mm. Um, and that's a weakness. I mean, an orangutan doesn't go insane. You can put an orangutan, especially an adult male orangutan, 20 years in solitary confinement and he'll do fine. But that's also their weakness because they were never able to cooperate. Um, An adult male cannot tolerate another adult male in his presence. So um, I've learned that we are very much, we humans, just like orangutans, are very much victims or a consequence of our own evolution. And the evolution that created us makes us highly gregarious. And this high gregariousness is one of the reasons that we have been so successful and why we dominate the earth.
0: And on that note, thank you, Mary uh, Berute, Mary Galdikas, for joining us here at the Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for stopping by today.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.